16. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also create great, also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, It's your church, and these are your words that you've given to us to see how your church would be ordered. And I pray, Lord, as we look tonight at this ministry of deacons, that you would give us helpful insight and clarity into the understanding of what this is saying and how we should order your church, and how we should see it function. Lord, we ask that you would help us to have ears to hear and minds to think these truths carefully after you, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, it's no overstatement to say that Jesus loves his church. (laughs) If anything, it's a massive understatement. Jesus does love his church. He purchased his church. He sanctifies his church. He will one day glorify his church. And we will be with him forever in his heaven, worshiping him as his people that he has redeemed. Before a time, we're here on this earth and we live and move and have our being as Partially sanctified saints, people who love the Lord God, who have been born again, have been regenerated. Our spirits have been renewed by his spirit, and yet we are not there yet. And we acutely feel the not thereness in our lives. And it is especially acute when we read things like, in Revelation, that there, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrows. And we know all of those things are part of our life here on this earth. Pain, suffering, sorrow, and tears, and on and on and on, frankly, we can go with our human experience that we have here on this earth. Well, the church is to be about the worship of Jesus Christ and the worship of him. We long for those days where we're going to be with him, but we're not there yet. So while we're here on this earth, one of the things, because Jesus loves his church, 
he has instituted in the life of his church is that there would be a full-orbed help, a full-orbed desire upon the part of the church to be able to minister to the saints, to the believers who are within the church. Last week we looked at pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, whatever phrase you want to use. Here we use pastor and elder pretty much interchangeably. And we saw how that the whole point of their ministry was the spiritual needs of the saints, to feed them spiritually, to nourish their souls, to point them to Jesus Christ, and to point you as people who are members of God's church, who have been born again to Christ over and over and over and over again. But Jesus loves his church so much that he doesn't just care for the spiritual needs, although those do take precedent and priority in the context of the church clearly. But Jesus also cares for his people in other ways too, physically. In Matthew chapter 14, there's this wonderful passage that is in every single gospel. And when it's in every single gospel, that's rare, number one. And number two, it should give us a little bit of pause to go just a tad slower to see what's exactly being communicated here. Well, here we have the feeding of the 5,000. And it goes like this in Matthew's gospel. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And he, when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me and Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus clearly cares about the souls of people. Here in this story, he had just been teaching for an extensive period of time and was now withdrawing away to go get alone and pray. And as he withdraws the crowds here, he's leaving. And so they, because Jesus is on a lake or near a lake, and he gets on a boat to go across the lake, they hoof it. They leg it around the lake and just get over there and get there before he's able to get across the lake on the water. And he gets there and what does it say? He's super aggravated because they don't give him his alone quiet time. Of course not, right? No, it says he had compassion on them. And his compassion 
was manifested in that he healed their sick. He just kept on ministering. And he was ministering not just to those spiritual needs that they all had, but now he was ministering their physical needs and healing them as they were sick. And then he goes on even further and ministers to them physically in a way that really was unheard of. They, the apostles, clearly didn't expect Jesus to do what he did because they told Jesus, send all these people out of here. We're way out here in the middle of nowhere. If they're going to eat dinner for the night, they need to get back to town. And Jesus, of course, says, no, you give them something to eat. And they only have, of course, we know from the Gospel of John, a little boy's lunch, how they got it. They brought him to Jesus. And Jesus took that little lunch and turned it into enough food to feed the multitudes. The point here is that what we see is that Jesus has a compassion that is not limited to just one specific area and one specific point of our lives. He definitely cares for our souls, but he also cares for the needs of the saints as well that are actual needs. Here, they were actually hungry and actually too far away to go back to town and buy enough food for that time. And Jesus creates food and then had healed them as well. In the gospel, pardon me, in the book of Acts in chapter six, we do find at least it's generally considered, and I think rightly so, the beginning of the deacon ministry in the life of the church. Now, back in Matthew chapter 16, just a few chapters after 14, we just looked at Jesus, to use the big church phraseology, gave the keys of the kingdom of the church to Peter and the rest of the disciples. And they, whoever sins they retained were retained, and whoever sins they loosed were loosed. And basically, what was happening there in Matthew 16 was Jesus was telling them, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, as you say, Peter, but also you are going to be leading my church, and so I'm giving you the instruction, I'm giving you the order, and I'm giving you the authority to lead my church. It's a high and powerful calling that Jesus gave to the disciples there. And so when we get to Acts chapter 6 and we find a big dispute breaking out in the church, the apostles are required to solve this problem. They use their apostolic authority in order to institute a office of the church that had not been previously given before, that of deacon. Look at Acts chapter 6. Now, In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews. Hebrews, of course, are the Hebrew-speaking Jews. We know from Acts chapter 2 that there were people who had been saved and brought into the church from all kinds of different languages and backgrounds. In this day, they were all at least Jewish by heritage, but not all by tongue or nationality. And so, 
There were widows in the crowd, and some of these widows were Greek-speaking widows, and some of these widows were Hebrew-speaking widows. There was a food program that had been instituted, and the widows who were Jewish speakers were receiving preference over the Gentile or the Greek-speaking or the other language-speaking Jews, Jewish widows. And so a a complaint arose. Here's the thing. If a person's attention is so distracted by physical needs that they are hindered from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then that need needs to be met and needs to be fixed and needs to be solved so that they will be able to worship God rightly. What's going on here is these Hellenistic Jews, I don't think just the widows, but I think all of the Hellenistic Jews were now in a position where they were coming to worship God. They couldn't worship God rightly because they were so concerned about their widows being neglected. A portion of the church was being neglected and being affected. And because this portion was being neglected, those who were closest to them by extension, their family, their friends, who also spoke Greek, were also being affected. Division was arising in the church, and if division wasn't put down here or helped here or alleviated here, then there was a real serious threat to the life, the health, and the unity of the church. People couldn't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when they came to worship God collectively with the congregation because their physical needs weren't met. This is the realm of where the deacon is going to work and going to function. Okay? The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of God's word to serve the tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we shall appoint to this duty. Now, first thing, they're to not stop preaching the word of God. Soul care in the life of the church is the most important and takes primary It should be the primary focus of the church because the whole point of the church is to worship and glorify God, right? The whole point of the church is to worship God in the face of Jesus Christ, right? Second Corinthians chapter four. And so when that is hindered, it behooves the pastors, the elders, the apostles here in this context, not to stop doing that, but rather to bring men alongside who can help them with that. Now, these men are not just really good table servers. These aren't just the best waiters of the bunch. There's spiritual qualifications here. He says that they need to be of good repute, meaning that people can trust them, right? That's important, right? Because the whole disagreement is happening because of distrust. They aren't being fed 
Therefore, we're having a problem with the rest of the congregation because can these other people who are serving the food be trusted to serve this group of people who are Greek-speaking widows? So they need to be people who are trustworthy, first and foremost. They can be trusted. They're of a good reputation, of good repute by the whole congregation. And that they're full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. So, both spiritual and practical. They are full of the Holy Spirit. These are godly men. They're trustworthy men. They're godly men who are pursuing holiness, who are pursuing righteousness, who are pursuing the Lord regularly. Because, yes, I'll say it here. Because if you think about it, if you are going and you're ministering, let's just use the example here, to a group of widows You are not just going to be serving them plates of food, but you are going to, as a deacon, be stopping and praying with them. You're going to be asking them how their grandkids are doing. You're going to be asking them, well, what's going on in your life? And you are going to be doing spiritual work as well. Okay? One of the things that I I think we need to be careful with, and I'll say it at this point, is that we don't bifurcate the two offices so much that the pastor does absolutely no practical care and the deacon does absolutely no spiritual care. There's, of course, going to be crossover, right? As I'm caring for people and their spiritual needs, I'm going to meet them practically as well. I think it's wise for a pastor to have a trek. I said this a bunch of times because I should be helping people move when they need to move. If somebody needs help with something and I can roll over in my pickup truck, that's a good pastoral means of me entering into their lives and having a point of contact and praying with them and talking with them and caring for their spiritual needs. Now, does that mean we don't need a deacon? Of course not. But you see, there's definitely going to be crossover. But my main focus, my main emphasis, the, the point of my ministry as pastor is to care for the souls of people. And sometimes that includes meeting some practical needs. Whereas the deacon's main goal is to meet practical needs and sometimes that includes spiritual needs as well. So both of these men, both of these people who serve in these offices need to be people who are of good Spirit or good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit because while these are definitely different in terms of their focus and function, they're not different in terms of their caring for the needs of the people, both spiritually and physically. Make sense? It's pretty, pretty straightforward, I think. And then wisdom. Wisdom. They need to be wise, right? They need to be wise about how they order this particular thing. It would be very easy in this case. Let's use Acts 6 as an example. There's thousands of people. I don't know how much a percentage there are of these Hellenistic widows. But let's say there's 120 of them. Okay, just for the sake of talk. There's 120 of these Greek-speaking widows. And these Greek-speaking widows aren't being having their food needs met. It would be very easy for these seven men that they ordain to knee-jerk react and just focus on those 120 women. 
and just take care of their needs. But if that happens, you know what happens. Then this other group gets neglected, and then there's a problem over here. Wisdom dictates that these seven men are going to set up an organization that's going to help the entire body function and function rightly, right? That's wise. Wisdom dictates you don't just knee-jerk react. Wisdom dictates, okay, let's stop, let's pray about this, and then let's set forth a plan and a pattern that will take care of their needs from here on out as best we can. So that then, as we move along, and we can course correct subtly, but we don't need to do this big, huge program all over again, right? So they need to be people of practical wisdom as well. So, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip and Procurius and Canner and Timon and Perminius and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles. They prayed They laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, as a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. So here, the word of God continues to grow. So here you have a positive effect from these men being ordained to the ministry here. So this is the first place where the diaconate, comes up and is instituted. You don't see much more of it throughout the book of Acts. You see a couple of these guys coming up later on, and they come up in ways where it's not like Stephen serving tables in Acts chapter 7 when he's taken out and killed. He's out, it seems like he's street witnessing, or he's evangelizing to somebody somewhere in some way, and he gets in a position where they take him out And he is killed for his faith. Philip, we see later on him preaching the gospel in Samaria and then to that Ethiopian eunuch later on. And that his daughters are prophetesses as well. So they're foretelling the word of God, not foretelling the future. But they're proclaiming the word of God as well. So these people end up having a good reputation and that they are men who are serving the body of the church, but we also see their spiritual character coming out later on as well. So in the book of Philippians, in chapter 1, As Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, he says in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. This is the only place besides our text in 1 Timothy where these two offices appear side by side. It's interesting. He's writing first of all to the congregation. An important point of note is that all of the epistles pretty much are congregational letters. The responsibility that the epistles are given is to the congregation. So you have 1 Corinthians, for example, where Corinth was a hot mess of a church, right? But it isn't written to the pastor and the elders of the church at Corinth. It isn't written to the pastors, the overseers, and the deacons of the church. 
It's written to the entire congregation there in the city of Corinth. But here in Philippi, he makes special attention to point out the overseers and the deacons. Personally, I think that's because of the division that's beginning to start. And he talks about it there at the end of chapter 4 between Yodia and Syntyche, or however you pronounce those names. But here he points them out. He gives us this office of overseer, pastor, elder, and, and position of deacon. So here we see these two orders within the church, these two ministries within the church, these two offices within the church. And from here on out, we don't find anything else instituted. So while there's a lot of hierarchy in lots of different religious organizations, lots of churches have this office and this office and this office and, you know, super high king muckety-buck of this thing or something along those lines. While there might be some wisdom, so for example, let's just talk about our own Baptist circle, right? We have in our association autonomous churches. We have volunteered to cooperate together as local churches in order to advance the gospel and increase the health of the body of Christ amongst Baptists in the North Valley. That's what we do as our association. But we do have an officer in our association. Well, we can add more to it too. We have two, I guess, the director of missions and the secretary of the association. Both of those positions function in both a practical and a pastoral kind of way from from time to time. However, we have no instruction about that in the word of God anywhere. What we do have is we do think it is wise as we cooperate together to have somebody who can oversee all these churches, not in a way of authority. That's the role of the pastor and elders of the local church. But as it pertains to what can I do to help facilitate your health and your functioning in a wise and proper way. So if it came down to it, we would reject the director of missions before we would reject our local pastors and elders in any Baptist church that you would find yourselves in, if you're going to say, we're only going to have biblical officers. Follow me? So while it might be wise and helpful to have these other positions, you have to remember they're not biblical categories. Biblical categories are overseer, elder, pastor, leader, bishop, whatever you want to call it, and deacon. Those are the only two biblical offices and biblical categories within the church. So let's go to our passage then and look through the qualifications that Paul gives for deacons because they are different than the qualifications that were given in the book of Acts. And understandably so, right? Before we just get into it, Paul has done a lot of ministry and has been all around kind of the known world at the time. And he has ordained elders, he's ordained leaders all throughout the churches. And so as he's gone around, he has been able to see what are good qualifications for deacons and elders. We looked at that last week, but for deacons as well. And he adds something to the qualification of deacon that for me is very interesting, but we'll get to that in a minute. Verse eight, deacons likewise also must be dignified, not double-tongued and not addicted to much wine and not greedy for dishonest gain. Again, this is all pretty easy to understand 
First of all, they need to be dignified. They need to be trustworthy. Again, you, they need to be people <clears throat> who handle themselves with decorum, handle themselves rightly. They aren't squirrely and odd and you never understand exactly what's going on with them. They shouldn't be double-tongued. That is very important because if they're meeting practical needs of people, you want to know that the person who's telling me this is telling me the straight-up truth. I don't want to think this person's telling me one thing here and then telling me something else over here or telling me something here and then not following through. This person needs to not be double-tongued. Not addicted to much wine and not greedy for dishonest gain. That this person is self-controlled or what both of those are getting at. Shouldn't be a drunkard. No one should be able to point that, put that label on him or her. And then greedy for dishonest gain. If these people are caring for the practical needs of the church, then they need to be people we can trust with our money. They need to be people who we know that if we're putting money in that box back there and we're trusting it to go to the corporate benefit of the congregation and meeting the practical needs of the congregation, that that's just what's going to happen, right? That there isn't all of a sudden going to be a brand new shining you know, Mercedes in the parking lot (laughs) three Sundays from now and you're kind of scratching going, where'd that car come from, you know? And you wonder if your money contributed to that. No, they need to be people who are not greedy for dishonest gain. They need to hold, verse 9, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love how right away he gives us the practical character of the man along with the spiritual character of the man. There have been far, far too many ministries that have been railroaded or shipwrecked or whatever phraseology you want to use because they picked a person to be in the deaconate because he was just a good businessman, because he was good at crunching numbers. The point is, is what is his spiritual character as well? as his practical character. He's holy, he's walking a holy life, right? That's the first part. But is he holding the faith in good conscience? Is he believing the things that we all hold dear? In our context, we could say, is he a 1689 man, right? Is he holding the faith with a clear conscience? We want that because like we talked about earlier, if, Joe, you know, if my parents, you know, heaven forbid something happened to them and they needed to move up here and me and Andy had to take care of them and I couldn't be there and I asked Joel to go take care of her in some way, shape or form, heaven forbid that Joel had a, you know, quality about him that I couldn't trust him to do that or that I could trust him to meet the physical needs but he didn't ever pray with her or ask her about her spiritual well-being as well you see so we want people in these positions of both elder but especially here in our what we're looking at today deacon to be people who have a who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience they really believe these truths and they believe them and believe them and that's why they are there Let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. 
No, this is just, I, I think that this is, it didn't say this for overseers, but clearly the same thing's going to be true for overseers as well, is there's going to be time of growth and using your gifts and acting in a way that's befitting of both a elder, but here for us a deacon. And we want to see that. If somebody comes in and I, you know, I don't have to ask them to do certain things and they just jump in and start doing certain things or just, you know, taking the initiative. Hey, can I do this? Sure. And start doing it. That's going to be an indication. Okay. There's a proclivity, a propensity, a bent towards ministry, a bent towards service. Now, I might not know right away what kind of service that is, right? Lots of guys have come into churches after they've just been born again and just started cleaning toilets and cleaning bathrooms and have gone on from there to pastor churches. Lots of guys have come in and said, hey, can I start meeting and praying with people and then gone on to be deacons within the church, right? So just because you jump in and start doing certain things does not necessarily mean that's the track you're on and you're, you're there and you're, you're stuck with it. But it certainly does mean that as leaders in the church, we want to be looking for and looking to and cautious of those who we are going to ordain and lay hands on. And we want to know that they're people who are proving themselves to be faithful in the ministry that they're called to. I mean, it just brings dishonor to the name of Christ if you ordain somebody and then they don't follow through with that which they were called to do, which happens all over the place, right? There are deacons, since we're talking about deacons, all over the country, probably all over Chico that I'm maybe unaware of, that just aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, aren't fulfilling the roles that they're called to. And it's a shame, and it causes problems in the churches that they're in. So, verse 11, this is the interesting thing to me. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this doesn't appear for the qualification of elder here, nor in Titus. Now, there's a much ado about this particular inclusion here. And so i laying all my cards out on the table right away. I do think that this is a ministry where husbands and wives work together in this particular capacity. And I do think that I don't have a problem saying that there are women deacons as long as they're functioning in a capacity here. And I am mindful, I kind of think, and we'll get to this in chapter 5, that that's what's going on with widows indeed as well when they're enrolled on these roles in chapter 5. And if you're familiar with that, then you know what I'm talking about. And if not, that's okay. We'll get there in a few weeks, Lord willing. But women... Well, let me just show you one example because it's important to do this right away, I think. In Romans chapter 16, here you have a woman called a deacon, deaconess, literally. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, our ESV says, but if you look at the note down below, it says, or deaconess in all of your Bibles, I hope all your Bibles, um, of the church at Chincheria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many 
and myself as well. So she's a servant there within the church, and she's coming to the Roman church, and in some way, shape, or form, he's saying help her with whatever she, her needs are so that she continue ministering in the way that she is. Now, if this is true, what I'm saying here and what I think it's saying here in chapter 3, her husband isn't mentioned. It's just her, her name, herself. So where would that come up? Where would that fall in? This is why I wonder, and granted speculation, but I think it's healthy speculation to think that, this, that she is one who either was, a, uh, was married to a deacon and they were fulfilling that function together as a role in their roles as husband and wife, as deacon, deaconess, and he died, and now she's a widow, but she's still continuing to serve in that capacity. So, here, the wives... Do I want it? No. The wives are to be dignified as well. Right? They're to be trustworthy as well. You shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that the husband is trustworthy, but the wife, eh, a little suspicious of her, right? Yeah, I'm not so sure about her. It shouldn't be one of those situations where it's like, who really is wearing the pants in that family? Do you get what I'm saying? Where the, the roles of husband and wife have been reversed. That, that, that shouldn't be within this household. It should be that the husband and wife roles are exactly the way they should be as ordered by 1 Corinthians, Ephesians chapter 5, so on and so on. They must not be slanderers because they're going to hear things. They're going to know details and things that the rest of the congregation won't know or shouldn't know. So they shouldn't be people who are slandering. They shouldn't be people who are talking out of turn or saying things that they shouldn't be saying of other people. That they're sober-minded and faithful in all things. That you can trust them. Again, they are trustworthy individuals. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. This is the same qualification we saw for the elders, and the reason is, is because as we manage our households, we ought to be able to, it, it's a microcosm of, hey, how can we handle the church as well? For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I was talking with Joel about this last night. And i was been praying this week about this illustration. What's a great way to illustrate this? And I think we have these two roles of a pastor, elder, and deacon in the church. The pastor came first, the elder came first, and the deacon came after to help and support. And as I think a good example, Maybe not the best one. Maybe you can help me with a better one for the future times when I talk about this. But the man was created first, and it wasn't good for him to be alone. He didn't function well. He didn't function the way he ought to. He didn't function properly on his own. He needed a helper. He needed somebody to come along and be with him to support and help him in the ministry of taking dominion of the earth. Right? 
God even says it was not good for man to be alone. Well, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. And so if he loves the church so much and he has ordained elders, and then we find as these elders are functioning in the church, this disruption rising up within the context of the church. Well, it isn't good for them to be alone because... They aren't supposed to leave the preaching of the word of God and prayer to go and minister tables. So in God's wisdom, he gives the disciples there the understanding that they should raise up deacons so that these two can cooperate in the ministry of the church and bring health and wholeness to the church, much like a husband and wife together bring health and wholeness to the home. We see the home used as an example in both elders and deacons' lives. So I don't think it's too far of a stretch for us to say that as the household of God, which is a phrase we're going to come up to, I think you're, in your, when you're preaching, Fred, in the household of God, there should be order as well. And health and wholeness, I think, will come as these two offices seek the Lord together and try to function biblically in the best way they can. Christ loves his church, and we love his church as well. And so it behooves the deacons in the church to seek to satisfy the needs of the saints in the way that they're called to practically, and also as they go along spiritually as well. And I'm called to preach and to minister spiritually and practically as long as I go as as I go along as well. But all in all, the health and vibrance, the vitality of the church should be able to be met by these two offices. We don't have any others. And I think as these two function rightly, clearly and orderly, that it points to Christ and Christ is glorified in the context of his church as we minister together for the benefit of one another so we can see the glory of God in that face of Jesus Christ more and more clearly. Lord, we thank you for the love and care and compassion you've given to your church and how that in the life of the church you've given these roles and this order so that it would function in a way that is pleasing to you and brings glory and honor and praise to you. And so, Lord, as we move forward as a church, I pray that you would be pleased to fill us with your spirit. And as we function in these roles that you have called us to, that we would be able to glorify you more and more. And truly, we would be people who encounter you in a way that is both worshipful, glorious, beneficial, and ultimately to your praise and your glory, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.